What's up? It's Sophia Amoruso. My voice is an octave lower than normal because I've been having way too many meetings and I'm exhausted. So we're actually recording this from my sofa. <laughs> so if you guys haven't listened to the latest podcast in the Girl Boss Radio Network, because we are a network, there are four, four shows now in the Girl Boss Radio Network. Jen Gotch, the founder of Bando, has a really great new show called Jen Gotch is OK Sometimes. That's really a personal kind of diary of her life and living with mental illness and is really centered around making all of us feel less alone and it's one of it's probably the funniest podcast I've ever heard so go check it out anywhere podcasts are found in Apple Podcasts Success it's such a complicated idea and yet for so long we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Today we have an exciting guest, Tamara Mellon, is an entrepreneur, author, founder, and shoe designer, best known for co-founding Jimmy Choo and founding her own brand, Tamara Mellon. In 1996, at the age of 27, she left her job as an accessories editor at British Vogue to co-found a company with a then-unknown East London cobbler named Jimmy Choo. I booked myself into rehab. Before I went in, I called Jimmy and I said, can I take a meeting with you? And I said, look, I have this idea to start this business. I've been photographing your shoes and putting them in vogue for the last five years. right? And so I laid out this plan and I said, I'm just going away for a few weeks and I'll call you when I get back. <laughs> I didn't say where I was going. Over the following 16 years, she built one of the most recognizable luxury brands in the world. Jimmy Choo became a multi-million dollar empire sold in Harrods and Saks Fifth Avenue, a favorite among celebrities and a bit of a cultural phenomenon with its frequent mentions on sex in the city. I did a group with a bunch of feathers on shoes and I think that was one of the first times it appeared where Sarah Jessica Parker was running to catch a ferry and she was screaming, I lost my chew, I lost my chew. Through her time there, she discovered what she loves to do most, design shoes and break rules. In 2011, she sold her stake in Jimmy Choo for a reported $135 million. Following her exit from Jimmy Choo, she wrote an autobiographical book titled In My Shoes. In 2016, she launched her own luxury shoe label in a decidedly untraditional way, with no retailers involved. Sold directly to women. You've got to believe in the future and what you're going to, what you know your vision is. And I didn't give up on my vision. Today, she's on the show to talk about reinventing yourself and starting your own business. We'll get to our chat with Tamara in just a minute. But first, Maggie and I are going to share all of the details of what's going on at the Girl Boss headquarters. What has been going on? What's up, Maggie? Well, hello, hello. Um, <laughs> as I'm holding a puppy. This is like FM radio. <laughs> hello, hello. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> So over at Girl Boss, we have a piece on job interviews and great questions to ask while you're in them. 
So as we know, the interview is one of the most important parts of hiring. And right? stressful. It is stressful. And everybody kind of, it's hard when you start interviewing, you know, more than a couple people, things start blending. Mm-hmm. So questions are definitely important on both sides, the job applicant and the company, just to make sure it's a fit on both sides. Yeah. This particular piece so gives what, you a few starting or kickoff questions on like what are really good things to ask on your side after, you know, the, they get all the nitty gritty on you, on what you're passionate about. And then when they turn it over and say, hey, do you have any questions? This is where you can really command yeah. and take control. And it's important to show that you know something about the company and come up with you know, bring questions that are qualified about the company that you're working for. I can't even tell you how many times people were, you know, came into interviews and called nasty gal, nasty girl, or, you know, asked about how I founded the company. It's like, I wrote, I wrote a book about it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you have to read my book, but at the very least a Google search would be a good idea. The summary. Um, And just showing like you're interested is really, really important. So what are the, Mm -hmm. some of the top questions that we should think about when we're interviewing for jobs? So some of the questions I really liked that I pulled out were, um, um, asking them personal questions about what they love about the company. So getting an inside scoop from the source directly rather than on a glass door or mm-hmm. blog. Another good one is, again, showing that you've researched. So saying something like, I read about the recent blank and wanted to know more about blank. Mm-hmm. Um, another good thing is getting to know the, I mean, culture is essential nowadays, especially just with large companies, lots of people, uh, making sure you blend really nicely with that culture. So asking about it directly, how they would describe the culture. Do people go out to lunch or do people sit at their desks? It's just good to know that stuff. And you really don't think about it in the interview unless you ask. One that I read was asking what the salary range is for the position. I think you can argue both ways, whether the employer should say that first or you should state your salary requirements. Mm -hmm. Because if you state your salary requirements and they really want to hire you, you know, they may start a little bit lower than that, but like you can work your way back up to that sometimes. But also if you really overshoot and just shoot for the stars Mm -hmm. and maybe aren't super reasonable and want like a $20,000 raise (laughs) just because you're changing jobs. Mm -hmm. That can be kind of tough because in my experience, it kind of, it's like, oh, wow, that's so far out of our range and so far beyond their experience or Mm -hmm. how many years they've been doing this that makes it, it, it's, it's, it can kind of be a non-starter. Yeah. I also think another good one besides salary is just throwing in something random to finding out the personality of the person or the company. One of the questions was at the end of the day, I'm standing across the street from your company's office and people are walking out the door at five. What facial expressions will I see? Yeah. That's yeah. kind of an interesting question. I personally never asked that. I mean, but... it's kind of cool when people leave together mm-hmm. and they're like, let's go do something. Or right. what I saw at the rally, which I mean, I don't want to you know, it's really the team that I would, you know, defer to for how happy they are at Girlboss. It seems like people Mm -hmm. are pretty happy, but to work so hard at the Girlboss rally and have a team that's like best job ever Mm -hmm. and not feel like they just got like, you know, worked to the bone, but like were energized Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. That's what you want. Cause it's a lot of work to, to start a company and we're all in it together. And when you're doing something important and feel like you're making an impact and able to be close to the work and aren't just kind of doing what you're told, Mm -hmm. that can be a really expiring, that can be a really inspiring Mm -hmm. experience. It's good to level set with like, you know, do people work nine to five? Mm -hmm. Is this a place that has 
flexibility? What are your what's your vacation policy? You know, I think the wrong kind of employer may hear questions like what's your vacation policy or, you know, how soon can I move up in the role mm-hmm. as like I'm here for the wrong reasons. Especially like how fast can I move up in the role? Because you want people who are excited about the job that you're interviewing them for. But I do think that sussing out flexibility is an important piece of the job and whether or not you're going to be supported when you take a vacation. Because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people assume that their boss isn't going to be happy about it. And there probably are some environments where that is the case. Mm -hmm. And it is up to the boss to set that example, as Patty McCord said on her episode of Girl Boss Radio. But um, that's something I've learned to do. And I'm going to Hawaii next week. (laughs) yeah yeah you know what else I think is a good is a good question or something to ask about is um where the future of the company and the position are going because a lot of times people end up moving departments or the whole thing is restructured so yeah so it's like if you don't have that futuristic goal or that vision then it's like you're just kind of sitting in this one particular part and so it's not like is there going to be movement in the future you know yeah upward Mm -hmm. upward mobility yeah fun lots of and questions you can find that on girlboss.com mm-hmm. uh, where we publish so much great content every day mm-hmm. it's called 10 questions you should definitely ask in your next job interview definitely now let's get ready to hear from entrepreneur author and designer tamara mellon where did you grow up you have an accent okay so i had a i had a interesting childhood with two very different cultures. So I grew up half in London and half here. So I actually lived in LA between 76 and 83. So and you've got to remember the world then didn't have social media. So going to I went to boarding school in England. So we're going to boarding school in England and then flying home to LA for vacation with two completely different worlds. It was a it was a culture shock. And your mom was a former Chanel model, and your dad was, he was a stuntman? He, so when he was very young, he was a stuntman for um, Rock Hudson. Yeah, because they looked identical. And so he did that when he was very young. And then later in life, um, he was, he went into business, and he was the CEO of Fidel Sassoon. That's why we lived in L.A. Wow. They still have, they do great cuts. Yeah. With the best technical. Yeah, I remember as a child sitting in the salon, you know, watching Fidel cut hair. Tamara's father was also an amazing businessman, known for his position as CEO of Vidal Sassoon. She explained how her father inspired her to become a businesswoman and what she learned from him. My father was a great inspiration and mentor to me. And growing up, I always certainly thought I want to be like my dad more than I wanted to be like my mother. Mm -hmm. Um, He was the one that really inspired me. And yeah, I think being around my father, being around Fidel, who, you know, Fidel was always really into design. He loved architecture. He loved art. You know, if you look at his haircuts, they're very architectural. So and then on my father on the business side, and you know, what they did with Sassoon in the early days was really interesting. They really were entrepreneurial and they really thought outside the box. Like they would do things. They were the first people to do designer shampoo. No one had thought about it as a luxury product. Fidel was the first hairdresser to become famous. No one, there was nobody known for hairdressing mm-hmm. before Fidel. You know, they turned him into a celebrity. And they used to, I remember my dad saying to me, you know, they used to take Fidel to Japan and they would put him on stage and sell tickets like it was a rock concert. 
and it was like so they were really so I think creative and I think I absorbed a lot of that sort of outside of the box thinking different ways to do things wow and you didn't end up going to college no I dropped out of high school wow so I actually don't even have a high school education so um yeah so it really does prove if you want to do something you can do it yeah I left school at 16 I went to what is now nice <laughs> when I look back I'm like my god how ridiculous was this but it's called a finishing school in Switzerland um where they don't really exist anymore um Princess Diana actually went to the same school and what you do there is you learn French cooking sewing etiquette and skiing wow, and that was your choice <laughs> skiing what a combo I know what a crazy right and you know what I think it's very old-fashioned and what it was doing I guess was setting you up to run a household yeah which was actually no use to me at all because I have no skills in the kitchen or (laughs) or doing any of those things are you a good skier and I actually went into business (laughs) um I am a good skier I bet you went to school for it wait so did you go to finishing school as a choice or was that something your family pushed you into you know what I think it was um just because I didn't know what to do And I had a couple of girlfriends that I was really close to going there. So I thought, hmm, sounds like a good idea. So I'll go go where they're going. I mean, it sounds kind of fun. It was. You know what? Looking back, it was an amazing year. And... And in a way, like if somebody wanted to take a gap year and do something interesting, I would go to Switzerland, go to school for a year. Yeah. Uh, Do you feel like it helped you or hurt you not going to college? It didn't hurt me. Um... Work-wise, I think, you know, because I actually started working from the ground up. I started working on a shop floor selling clothes. So I learned the fashion industry really from right from the ground floor serving customers. I think where it hurt me was my confidence. I think if I had had uh, a business degree from college, I think it would have given me a lot more confidence and I would have understood the business language or the language of business, which I had to learn on the go, you know, particularly when I started Jimmy Choo, you know, my goal, I wanted to make beautiful shoes, but I didn't understand um, business or investment bankers or finance or private equity or any of the things that I was going to have to face. And I had to learn it on the go, which was, which was really tough. And so I think from a confidence level, you know, I think college is good. Like I, I, I'm so happy my daughter wants to get she wants to get an MBA in business and I'm so happy because that will set her up um, for whatever she does. Yeah, I think what people don't realize is, you know, they think maybe I thought at some point uh, in my life that when people who went and got MBAs were just like total score squares and like you can be a business owner and and you can, but you can be a business owner and just be creative and you can, but you have so such a huge advantage knowing what the people who are making you sign contracts, giving you money holding you accountable for the money that they've given you. If you know what they know, you can operate in their world much better. And if you don't know, the learning curve is just massive. And it's massive. And I'm, you I've, can protect you know, yourself I'm exper- you I've know. experienced the same thing. I'm still experiencing it because I didn't, I didn't go to college either. Yeah. Tamara Mellon has said that she simply couldn't have done what she did at Jimmy Choo without that experience. She revealed why working a job in retail was so valuable for her career and exactly how it helped her in building Jimmy Choo. I don't think there's any way that I could have built Jimmy Choo if I didn't have those experiences. You know, when I started Jimmy Choo, I had 10 years experience in the fashion industry. People often think it was like just 
uh, kind of moonshot, mm-hmm. right? Overnight success, but it wasn't. I was, you know, I did many different jobs from working on the shop floor. I did, um, I worked at a PR company for a year. I worked at a magazine called Mirabella, and then I worked at Vogue for five years. But I think just starting on the shop floor, it, it, it taught me how to serve a customer, how to interact with a customer, how to organize a stock room. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I actually started Jimmy Choo, I knew how to run a store. You know, that those things were invaluable. And when I started Jimmy Choo, I did also serve customers on the shop floor, you know, and then my office was like in the basement of this tiny little store with sort of no windows. And I was practically, practically sitting in a cupboard, but I would run up and down in between dealing with the factories in Italy to serve a customer on the shop floor. Yeah, I want to hear more about that because, I mean, starting a business for anybody is uh, such a learning curve, but doing it, I think, in a time where we couldn't Google, uh, you know, how to do this or had like some kind of system that would, you know, print shipping labels for us or all the things, all of the tools that uh, this like new world affords us that are, you know, there's more and more every day. I think there's also a crazy pressure on kids today to to have huge success too young. You know, there are all these sort of tech startup stories of people dropping out of college and, uh, you know, being founders of giant like social media companies. And and I think that actually, you know, there's a lot of too much pressure on kids to do stuff too quickly without actually just putting the years in. Almost kind of like, you know, like, like we did, you pay your dues and you learn the industry. And I think there's so much pressure they put on themselves now to have too much success too young. If that's your goal and that's your mission, then so I support it, go for it. But I don't think you should put that kind of pressure on yourself, thinking that if someone else is doing it, I have to do it too. In her last job before starting Jimmy Choo was as an accessories editor at British Vogue. She actually got fired from this job, which was the catalyst to start her company. She shared why she was let go from Vogue, what she learned from it, and why it was the best thing that ever happened to her. I was drinking and I was doing drugs and I was getting really out of control. And so what I was doing, I was going in late. I was leaving early. I wasn't focused on what I was doing, which was a shame because I was really good at what I did. And I remember the woman who fired me, Anna Harvey, who's just a couple of years ago left Vogue. She had a long, long career there. And I remember her taking me into her office and saying, you know, Tamara, we think you've outgrown your job. (laughs) And I was like, that's a very nice way to put it. Wow. But you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because that was the moment I straightened myself out. Um, And I actually checked myself into rehab with a determination turning my life around because I got scared enough. You know, there was enough fear that I thought, what's going to happen to me if I don't straighten this out? Right. So you're sober? Yeah, 23 years. Wow. I stopped drinking like eight or nine months ago. Congratulations. Um, Thanks. Yeah, it was just, it wasn't, nothing like really hit rock bottom and I'm not sure, I don't think I'm an alcoholic, but I like, I like wine so much and um, I guess when you're like showing up to meetings with like a hangover a couple days a week, you might have a problem, I guess, so uh, it's been really... It's really nice to quit drinking. I recommend it. It's nice to feel clear-headed. I really highly recommend it. Yeah, my brain works just yes. so differently. Yeah, it's, and you probably sleep better. I always sleep fine, but um, yeah, I wake up feeling a lot better. So you got fired from Vogue, and then what? I had an idea that I that I wanted to start Jimmy Choo while I was at Vogue. So what I did, I got fired. 
I booked myself into rehab. Before I went in, I called Jimmy and I said, can I take a meeting with you? So I took a meeting with him and I said, look, I have this idea to start this business. I've been, you know, photographing your shoes and putting them in vogue for the last five years. right? And so I laid out this sort of plan, this overview of this plan that I had and I said I'm just going away for a few weeks and I'll call you when I get back I didn't say where I was going (laughs) and so I went to rehab for a month and I called him when I got out and then went down took another meeting with him that's kind of how it started but what that light bulb moment start the business was because I was the accessories editor and in the early 90s there was only a shoe company called Manolo Blahnik Literally nobody else did shoes. None of the big luxury companies, <laughs> you know, did. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> um, so Jimmy was a cobbler in the East End of London, and I would go to him to make things for shoots. So I'd go down there and I'd say, you know what, I'm doing a story and it's all based on roses right now. So let's make a pair of sandals and can we put a rose here or, you know, I want studs here and I want the heel like this. So he'd make the shoe. Then I'd photograph it and I'd give him a credit in Vogue. So my thinking was, that's a great platform to start a business. There's, you know, there's, his name is known because we keep putting in Vogue, but there's no business and there's nowhere to buy the shoes. When she met Jimmy Choo, he was just an unknown cobbler making shoes on the streets of London with no intentions of becoming anything more than that. So I was curious, how did Tamara convince a man with no real business aspirations to help her create what later became one of the most iconic luxury brands? Really, when I look back, I was 27 years old and I don't know how I did that. I think... (laughs) You know, I think as he'd known me for five years, and I think we had a relationship, I used to go down to his studio a lot, which was in Hackney in the East End of London, which in those days was was had not been gentrified and it hadn't become kind of trendy. It was very dangerous. Um, and I used to, you know, I used to go down there and make shoes with him. So we had we had a relationship. And I think he he trusted me more than more than any than someone just coming in with money. He knew that I'd been in the industry uh, for a long time and had an experience. And so with him, did he put a business plan, plan together? Did you, was there a business plan? Yes, sort of, but we really didn't know what we were doing. We had sort of an idea about how we do I mean, you know, I'd had a vague plan of sort of, okay, find factories in Italy, <laughs> you know, raise money. And it was very hard to raise money because obviously I didn't have a track record in, in business and I was very young and I also I was a woman. Um, and we're talking about, you know, 1995. It was incredibly difficult. So what did I, I actually ended up borrowing 150 grand off my dad in the end. But I, it took me a long time to convince him as well. He had to really believe in it. Um, and the more I showed him of what I wanted to do, the more he believed. That's what gave us our, our sort of kickstart. And so from the kickstart, I mean, what were the first signs of, wow, this is working, let's go do more of that? You know, the first couple of collections we did were tough, you know, didn't really work out. Like we, I went to Italy, we found one factory and when the samples arrived, they were they were te- the quality was terrible. We couldn't even show them to buyers, so we were we were selling off sketches, you know. And we um, so you know so it wasn't it was a rocky road. And then about it was ninety eight some spring summer ninety eight collection that was the breakthrough moment. You know we found found a great factory. Um, I remember I f- I flew to Italy and didn't even have 
uh, meetings. You know, I had a book of factories, Italian factories, and who they made for. So I literally cold called, knocked on their door, and went with sketches and said, will you make these shoes for me? Yeah, I mean, that's before... That's before Google, like Google oh, search? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, there was no internet. So when I started, I'm really dating myself here. When I started, we were faxing orders to the factories yeah. in Italy. We didn't have email. I mean, and it's like at every in every generation, I think what smart entrepreneurs do is reverse engineer things. It's like, oh, well, if it works for that fashion house, like certainly I'll all the quality of those shoes will be great. They must yes. be a good partner. And that's something that I've done over the course of my career that I don't know if everybody does naturally, but just as a piece of advice to our listeners, like you can learn almost anything by being really creative with Google searches. And I think you had to probably be a lot more creative um, when you were faxing things. Yes. So how long after you launched Jimmy Shoe did uh, the brand appear on Sex in the City? Oh, it it happened pretty quickly. It was that collection. Wow. I did a group with a bunch of feathers on shoes, and that was the. I think that was one of the first times it appeared where Sarah Jessica Parker was uh, running to catch a ferry, and she was screaming, "I lost my chew! I lost my chew!" Wow. <laughs> that was, and we didn't know. We didn't even know it was going to happen. So what happened was Candice Bushnell was in London, and I'd opened a tiny little store that was probably about size of this room and she came into the store and she fell in love with the shoes and that's why she wrote them into the script selling shoes is fun I've sold shoes many times there's something just about like shoes and books they they sit on a shelf like very and jewelry's nice too because it just they they, they show up in these like compact yes you know packages shoes are like boxes and I don't, I don't there's know there's something very there's an emotional about it yeah that too I've laced up many a shoe and put them on many a foot. So what happened once the brand wound up on Sex in the City? Did that change your business? It was, you know, I think it, what it what that did, um, it just, it, it was name awareness to a much broader audience than uh, we could have reached just by being in glossy magazines. You know, being on TV, there's a much bigger audience. So that really helped sort of turn us into a household name. And at some point, the company sold. How long after you founded it was... was so 16 years later, okay. I, I finally sold and walked away. I mean, over the course of the time, um, Jimmy sold his shares early on. He sold his shares in 2001, and that's how private equity came into the business. They bought his shares. So we went through a sales process actually four times, which I wouldn't recommend to anybody to do. It was incredibly disruptive to the business and stressful, and I don't think was was good for the the long-term viability of the business actually because you have people that come in who your goals are not aligned you know they want to get in and out quickly make money and the founder of a business you really care about the business you care about the people in it you care about the quality of the product so after the fourth time of going through that I thought you know what I don't really like the culture here anymore I don't like what's happened to the product and you know I thought to myself okay I'm either young enough I leave now and I could start again I'm just young enough you know, I'm on the on the border, um, and I could start again and build a company with a culture that I'm really proud of, and a and a culture that's really female focused. That's kind of really what I wanted to do, and uh, and a company that really speaks to women and talks about what, things that women value, and that was really what I was more excited about. 
was there a break between Jimmy Shu and launching Tamara Mellon? Yeah, sure. I had a non-compete for a while. So in that time, I wrote a book called In My Shoes, and so which was actually great. That was really cathartic in a way. It helped me really close that chapter and move on. Um, and it was the story of building Jimmy Choo and then some of my personal life kind of weaved in and out because it's part of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, and then launched a new business with uh, completely different kind of values to it. And initially, when you relaunched, the brand was sold through, it was your name, and it was sold... In wholesale. Yeah, in retail yeah. stores. And, and that didn't work out. That did not work out. So when we did the relaunch, we kind of said, okay, I admit I fucked up, but I'm going to give it another go here. I'm going to try again from what I learned. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I tried to do buy now, where now too early. So I tried to do it in 2013 when most other designers did it in 2016. And so what happened was when you're sort of, for, when you're first one out the gate, it, you're usually the one that fails because no one's ready for it. Mm-hmm. But what I learned from that is if you want to do buy now, wear now, it really needs to be direct to consumer. I was trying to put a new idea through an old distribution channel. And it was really tough. It, it wasn't ready for it. They weren't ready to receive monthly deliveries. Oh, wow. Okay. They weren't ready to... So you were doing, like, I mean, a rapid... You weren't showing the shoes in spring to have... I wasn't doing collections. For holiday. It was... Yeah. I wasn't. So I wasn't doing... So the buyers a, had already allocated all their dollars exactly. and you were showing up with shoes that were going to... That should have gone on the floor... Exactly. Two weeks from that time. Yeah, that's that's hard. We We... We did that a little bit at Nasty Gal, and it's like if you're if you don't fit into the uh, in the cycles that um, these huge retailers are used to working in, just they're not going to like make no make a new way of working for for you. No, and I, but I think they've realized now that they have to adapt and change to survive. Yeah. But at that time, you know, no one really understood what I was talking about. They actually they looked at me like sometimes I felt like I had an alien growing out the back of my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But but you're absolutely right. They they couldn't um they didn't want to uh adjust their buys. They didn't want to adjust their financial planning. Yeah. And also I think being a startup again, I wasn't big enough to affect change. You need critical mass to affect yeah. change. You know, if I was the size of Jimmy Choo and had that leverage of hundreds of millions of dollars going through that channel, then maybe I could have got them to buy or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, show things in a different way, but I just wasn't big enough. We'll be back in just a moment, but first let's talk about Stitch Fix. Oh my gosh, I just met Katrina late. I hope she can speak at one of our rallies. She is so impressive. Yeah. She just spoke at the Code Conference, which I went to, and uh, finally, finally got to say hi, and now we're on text. But, <gasps> you know, Stitch Fix was happening while I was building Nasty Gal, and she really unlocked how to use technology to uh, to serve people and to personalize what, what they're looking for and to, to show them what they want before they have to look for it, um, which is, you know, using technology to improve our experience with everything, you know, that we're doing over and over again is a really powerful thing. And mm-hmm. that's something that, that we want to do as we build Girl Boss. Yep. And so if you don't know what Stitch Fix is, you go onto stitchfix.com and you fill out a style profile and Stitch Fix will send you clothes, shoes, and accessories that are picked just for you with the help of 
a real human stylist and it's fit to your size, your lifestyle, your budget, and of course your taste. And every Stitch Fix box comes with five items that you can try on at home and you only pay for what you actually keep. So it's super easy to send back what you don't keep because Stitch Fix covers shipping both ways for returns and exchanges and there's no subscription required. You can get your fix monthly, quarterly, or whenever you feel like it. So get started now at stitchfix.com girlboss and you'll also get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com girlboss to try Stitch Fix today. stitchfix.com girlboss. We have so much more with Tamara coming up, but first let's talk about ShipStation. Our favorite ShipStation, Maggie, you use ShipStation. Tell us all about it. We love ShipStation. We use it for everything, not only our merch, but also just every other shipment. We have sweeps and we end up sending things out for those winners. So we just thought it'd be easy to compile everything um, at this one-stop shop shipstation.com mm-hmm. that's a tongue twister but i love it you can literally use it on any platform shopify squarespace etsy uh it's so easy and simple it's literally a click of a button it feels too easy sometimes like what does it do exactly it's been a long time since i've shipped online orders yeah so you create the labels on shipstation uh print them and then just literally put them on the package. And you can use USPS, FedEx, UPS, pretty much anything. Mm-hmm, any of them. Cool. Any and all. So. And so right now you can try ShipStation free for 30 days and get an additional month free only if you use our promo code GIRLBOSS. Don't wait. Go to ShipStation.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GIRLBOSS. That's Ship, S-H-I-P, Station, S-T-A-T-I-O-N.com. Enter GIRLBOSS. ShipStation. Make Make ship ship happen. happen.